Hello and welcome to this Matthew Clark Interviews podcast where we sit down with the industry's key figures. We're here today with uh, gin curator and global brand ambassador for Thomas Dakin Gin, Alex Walker. Thank you for joining us today, Alex. Yes, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, so I've got you on here to talk all about homegrown gin uh, and Thomas Dakin itself. So I guess that's a good place for us to start really then is just talking a little bit about what makes gin a local product, a product with provenance. Yeah, so I mean, even going back in history, where gin's been made has, has predominantly been, um, and I suppose has been notorious to London with the early days of the gin craze, and and then I suppose more more recent history in the Victorian era with the big gin distillers coining the phrase "London Dry Gin" to give it a home. But that's never been sort of geographically restricted and. Uh, London dry gin is the method, the traditional method of making gin that can be made anywhere in the world. So from a, from the start, it's, there's always been this history of, of provenance from London. However, I mean, you, you mentioned our story being in the northwest, and, and there's a sort of secret history of gin around the north of England, which we tell through the story of Thomas Dakin, as he is known as the forefather of English gin and that modern style of gin. And part of that was being in the northwest, that age of enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution. So there was science and technology here. But also the, the botanicals coming into the area through the Liverpool docks, up the canal, into where the original distillery was in Warrington, but making gin for Manchester, the fastest growing city in the world. Now, those flavours coming in, we've referenced in our modern gin that's winning awards. As you said, we're doing very well and it's it's quite iconic now. But also, you know, there's more local gin. So, you know, we have great gins in the forests of, of, of Cheshire in Macclesfield where they're foraging different ingredients. And there's great gins coming out of every city and village and town in the UK where they're using either local stories, local ingredients, local honey, you know, local fruits and and, and, and the herbs. So, you know, we go back into recreate Thomas Dakin's gin with things that were drank and tasted and used in those days. So it is very important, I think, and especially now gin's moving on, to to look at the difference in gins rather than just being large companies, which, you know, we're, we're not shy. We're a very big gin business that Thomas Dakin set up. 258 years ago and we make a lot of our own brands but we've gone back to recreate Thomas Dakin's original style of gin but also people now have the the chance to make their own gins with their fingerprint and each distiller's sort of choice of botanicals from the local area will become their fingerprint on that gin so I think it's it's very much key to the whole story of being homegrown and being local and I think you know local gins are People are making a great living. Absolutely. Um, so, so, so I think gin is thought of as quite a stereotypically British drink. You know, we can argue that it's Dutch, of course. But is is there a certain British quality to to the way that distillers approach gin? You know, in, in a way contrasting with the way that you know a cognac maker would approach making a spirit. Well, I, it's quite interesting. I was in Holland for the first time. Thomas Dakin is is spreading its wings, and we we've, we've launched last year around various cities and, and various countries around Europe and the rest of the world. But being in Holland, in a sense, you know, it's a bit like um, trying to sell freezer to the Eskimos. I'm going back to the place which is the, the home of the original Geneva, 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 whichever way you want to spell it. But in a sense, you know, we, you know, a lot of the, the marketing was done through the whole stories of Dutch courage and the, the soldiers coming back of stories of the Dutch drinking gin. But that style of gin is is different, and you know the the base spirit is maybe it's rye or barley and different grains. We tend to do a majority of gins in the UK use a wheat grain spirit and neutral spirit as a blank canvas because with the British Empire and with lots of new flavours coming in from all over the world, we could pick and choose. And the, the distillers of the day, such as Dakin, 
could have looked at what was coming in and, and added new flavors. So it wasn't just a sort of juniper infused rye or barley wine spirit rectified. It was a you know various other flavors. So there is something in that, and and that carries on in the modern gins today. Distillers look at a blank canvas. Joanne Moore, our master distiller, will use the same neutral grain spirit, but create Alpeer gin, Bloom gin, and Thomas Dakin gin, all traditionally made, all in a London dry style, because that's the method, but can be made anywhere. That traditional way of making it. So, and there's modern gin makers that are adding adding new things to that. That they're adding, you know, different processes and, and inventing, which, you know, there's no there's no right or wrong way. We just believe with Thomas Dakin gin, we've gone back, recreated his original style of gin in the way he made it, in the small still style as a single shot, and we find the flavors and the I suppose the blend of botanicals that we think were most prolific in his day, including red coal, which is quite an unusual botanical to have in a gin. I think we're the only gin to use red coal, which is uh, old English word for horseradish, which is unusual in itself. So using a very old traditional way, we're creating a very modern recreation of a gin, but then there's other small producers out there using very modern ways. You know, there's some Kids out there using, you know, various new styles of stills, using lots of fresh ingredients, whereas in the past, you know, we were importing ingredients from all over the world. They would have traditionally been dried. So putting them in the alcohol, reinvigorating those oils, uh, etc. within the, the dry botanicals is a very traditional way of doing it. But yeah, I think you're right. There's, um, there is a, a different way of making British gin. And I think we're, we're, all, we're always now as British gin makers and distillers looking at new ways and ways to produce and, and use new botanicals and new flavours, which we will be doing at, at our new distillery 2020. So you mentioned there that you um, have recently been overseas, talking everything Thomas Dakin, no doubt. Are you seeing growing demand from overseas for British gin? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's very surprising where those markets are. I mean, everyone knows in the gin industry that Spain is, is ahead of the curve because of, one, great weather, lots of British tourists, uh, up to now anyway we'll see what changes in the next couple of years but also the sense that they were really accepting the new age of British gins and now many of the Spanish distilleries are creating their own that's an, a very obvious country but then when we look at where we see growth in Thomas Dakin and, and the brands from uh, I suppose quintessential brands who own the distillery the main distillery we're looking at places I was in recently in Ukraine in Kiev and such a great response to the gin they've just had their first gin festival and we were invited to to present there and speak to bartenders and you know that's a massive thing whereas in the uk now we have i mean every city and town has a gin festival every weekend in the summer without fail you can see them everywhere we you know sometimes in manchester there's one or two running in a month so you see that happening in places like kiev we see that happening in croatia where there's lots of growth in in those areas and these are young affluent um, new bars opening up the bars that we're in were like seven months old a year old but they look like they've been there forever they're great looking and great quality fit out germany again not traditionally known as a, as a big gin drinking nation is is really catching on to gin and that comes hand in hand with the resurgence of prohibition cocktail books you know the internet's great for digital things but you can go online and, and order you know first editions of some old cocktail books or find reprints of traditional cocktail and prohibition cocktail books because gin was in some of them, there's like 70% of the drinks are gin from that that golden age of cocktails when you know alcohol was banned, but people were being very inventive to get a quick, tasty, um, quality tipple inside them. So that that's a very interesting fact where the link between the you know the change in the law in the UK, the change in being able to look at old cocktail books, and then parts of the world where they're seeing what's been happening in the UK and America and and in Spain with the the gin resurgence, and they're doing it in their own way and creating new great their own speakeasy scene which over here people might be saying oh it's all 
it's all over, everyone's done it. Well, that's grown into new parts of the world, which is very interesting. Mm, so the gin boom that we're living through now, some could argue it came at the expense of sort of vodka, which was, you know, the dominant spirit. To what extent do you think the shift to, to gin is down to it being a British product, a product with, with some sort of local provenance? Well, I think, the, again, a few factors. If you go back to the 80s and 90s, it was very much... Uh, vodka bars and vodka bars really just had the spirit and they added their own flavours, you know, toffee flavour, bubblegum, strawberry, raspberry with lots of sugar syrup. People care about what they want to imbibe these days. What are they putting in their body? They want good quality ales, good quality food. We're more conscious about the various things we put in. And gin being a, a simple neutral grain spirit, but then with natural ingredients, it's naturally flavoured. It's not high in sugar content, though we've seen recently throughout the summer various articles about the amount of sugar in a lot of the, let's, let's say, non-traditional gins, coloured gins, flavoured gins, which is an issue because some of them can have far too much sugar in again. But I think that alongside the fact that it used to be an old people's drink and now young people are being conscious about that. There's great gin cocktails out there. People can buy local gins and try them and understand when they go to the local pub, they'll try a gin and go, oh, actually, that's really nice with not just with tonic, with lemonade, with soda water and a squeeze of fruit. If you get a great gin, a lot of girls and uh, guys are turning to just having it simply with soda and a squeeze of lime, lemon, grapefruit, because to them, it's got a great flavour profile. So I think that's important. If you're in a local pub or a local uh, summer fair, you can see a local gin. Why not try it? You're in the local area, just like you might buy a local cheese, some local ham. Obviously, different parts of the world have local delicacies. If you're up in Scotland, you might buy some Arbro smokers. If you're down in Wales, you might buy some great cider or some great some great cheese. So I think that's that's where we are. I mean, it, I'm, a, I'm in the gin industry, but I'll still go to, if I go to a farmer's festival in Anglesey and I'll see a local gin, I'll try it. If it's good, I'll buy it. I'll pay more than I would if I was buying a, a gin from a supermarket. But it's a great thing to take home and remember that time and, you know, get a little taste of, of the local area. And I think, you know, we're doing that with Thomas Dakin. It was made in the local area. We've we've looked at what was being drunk back in the 17th and 18th century, as are other gins. And I think it's uh, yeah, it's really healthy, that. And I think it is uh, becoming a young person's drink. I see it. I was at a gin festival last week in Preston at Guy's Thatch Hamlets. It's by the canal. It's this thatched sort of village with a hotel, all sort of period, 17th, 18th century, fantastic place. And with that, you know, as soon as the gin festival started in the evening, the majority of people coming in going straight to the gin tents and the gin bars were young, say, 20 to 30-year-olds, which again shows the difference in drinking culture and how it's changed quite quickly over the last 10 years. So speaking of which then, how is the gin market currently evolving? You know, where is it heading? Well, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, about what's a real gin and what isn't a gin. And I think even as a business that, that I work for with quintessential brands and the, and the G&J distillers, gins, we've moved with the market and yes we brought out for the first time a blue gin a blueberry gin with green oils and a wild berry gin which are colored to to show one's blueberry one's wild berry wild berry slightly pink but we've refrained from putting sugar in and what what they've done there is actually look at well we can make it sweet and it can be perceived sweeter and in the end you're going to mix it not a lot of people drink neat gin to be honest as a as a leisure activity um so they'll mix it with a lemonade or with a tonic or with a juice therefore why add sugar to it and we've we've got a lot of uh positive press lately because we are the gin's doing the lowest sugar and with thomas dakin when people try it at 42 percent it's got a real citrusy zesty sweetness to it from the licorice the orange and the grapefruit and then the spice and the savory element from the red coal otherwise known as horseradish so i think we're moving with the times in that way but also we're sticking traditionally without throwing lots of sugar in there just to make it 
tastes nice on a on a sample table, therefore someone buys it. It's more about you know, still sticking to the traditional ways. And I think when Thomas Dakin opens our distillery, we will be looking at new flavours, but we're really looking at perceived sweetness through using great botanicals rather than, hey, here's a gin, stick some sugar in, because, you know, people will go down that route and have a sweet tooth. And I think, you know, there's trends in everything, and I think the vodka industry has proven that. And there's a lot of people in the industry sort of say it's a bad thing, but I think from our side, we look at it as a positive thing, because if we're bringing... And people always ask me this question, Luke, it's... Who's your biggest competitor? And I always jokingly, but in a sense, there's some truth in it, say the vodka industry, because in a sense, you know, they're such a big part with just the neutral grain spirit side, whereas all of our gin industry is trying to create something of a flavour profile and a fingerprint of the distiller and, and locale and sort of, you know, provenance. And then in, in that way, I think with our new distillery opening with Thomas Dakin, we can experiment with new things. And maybe... As we did with Thomas Dakin, we didn't go with any trend. We, you know, we brought out a drink um, profile, a flavour profile, using very old style of botanicals, including horseradish, which has never been done since the 18th century. People were drinking their gins with horseradish in as a sort of elixir and a sort of an awakener of the senses, because it, it gives you a bit of a kick when you, um, as you know, it's quite spicy. So I think there's lots of trends out there, but we're trying to keep quite sort of straight and narrow down the traditional route, while acknowledging that people may want different flavour profiles but not necessarily kicking loads of sugar in there which is I think is a great thing. Yeah I, I suppose it's about authenticity isn't it keeping true mm. to the to the original recipe. Yeah I mean we're, we keep true to the original style I mean it's very hard with with Dakin and we're again we're not shying away from any of it we, we do not say that Thomas Dakin is the original recipe a lot of the Dakin recipes from Thomas Dakin himself would have died with him and gone with him now his son and his daughter-in-law were very active his son Edward and his daughter-in-law Margaret uh, were very active in creating new ways of distilling they worked with coffee he was a still designer they worked with him to create <clears throat> new ways of refining the process and with that we know from our records and, and various looking back how people drank the gin and that that there were various flavours used that we that had gone out of fashion in a sense. I mean, horseradish is quite expensive. If you look at it, if you go to a whole food shop, buy a stick of horseradish, it'll cost you three, four, five pounds. Whereas you could buy a giant bag of black pepper from your Asian wholesaler for the same money. You're getting more for your money, more bang for your buck, let's say, from the, the black pepper. So as you move into the Victorian era, horseradish went out of fashion as a as a thing in in drinks and became more of a condiment with a silver spoon to go from being a peasant sort of gin additive to them being a as many things do being a sort of lords and ladies and kings and queens condiment and that was the story of horseradish as you see it's very well respected in japan with wasabi you get a little tiny bowl and a little spoon and it's respected as a spice to put on your sushi so this has happened now along the way we've brought back these flavor profiles but we don't exactly know exactly the recipe. But Joanne Moore tried 30 times to get the balance right, and we believe we've got it right. And hence, winning awards and getting the Gin Masters 2018 sort of proves that, you know, we're giving we're giving Thomas taking some credibility and bringing him back, and in a sense, doing him justice as a as a pioneer of of gin making. Now, along the way, we've made some modern gins, but we have also kept the Green Alls family gins on as part of our business because they own the business. The reason people don't know Dakin is the Green Alls family bought the business in 1861, and they you know get rid of a lot of the original names and signage, and obviously appropriate the business as their own, which which is fair. They bought it, and for 150 years. Thomas Dakin was really only known in the in the sort of distillery world as the forefather of English gin. So, 
you know, it's really hard. I mean, everyone's trying to say they're the original or the, the award-winning gin, and there's all, you know, and I think the accolades are great. There's something in the provenance of Thomas Dakin and bringing him bringing him back to life through this bottle of gin that, that's been very important to me, being from the northwest. And I think most of it is about, you know, we talk about locality here and homegrown and provenance. Well, this secret history of gin, according to Thomas Dakin, that will unleash our distillery that we've been telling since we launched. Take Thomas Dakin in 2015. It's very important to me being from the Northwest and, and spending my life in Manchester. And I think it also impresses and I suppose it astounds a lot of gin drinkers because they didn't realise that actually there was people making gin 80 years before the Victorian era coming out of Manchester. This is before all the big boys that you know, supermarket brands and your big distilleries. There was a 25 year old from Manchester making gin. So that story really is being replicated now by new young distillers coming to the market going i can do you know and that that's great respect to a lot of the local gins in manchester who are doing it you know a lot of young folks coming to the industry for the first time again out in lancashire in brindle and places like that there's some amazing gins coming out locally and i think that's really strong and that's sort of a legacy of thomas dakin that we're we're proud of so you obviously mentioned you've got a new distillery on the way which was very exciting i take it it's in and around manchester yeah thomas dakin's distillery was always intended to make gin for manchester he saw it as the fastest growing city in the world this was before the industrial revolution if you i mean if you go to barcelona you go to edinburgh london they're ancient cities they've got you know old walls they've got even york and chester near here you know they've got roman walls around the city there's ancient ruins there's gothic architecture when really you come to manchester even though there's a lot of old buildings it's a very modern city this city was only built 250 years ago really in the last 200 years it's boomed and again it's resurgence in the last 10 20 years through culture music fashion and and now obviously the gin and the food culture is growing and the bar culture now with that it was very expensive to buy land in the city center however there was a canal and what a coincidence the canal from liverpool to manchester called the bridgewater canal opened in 1761 the date on all of our bottles and obviously on thomas dakin's uh, distillery launched in, 19, in 1761 therefore he used the canal structure uh, structure to bring the products from the docks the botanicals whatever ingredients you needed create the gin and then use the canal network to inject it straight into the center of manchester therefore we're bringing thomas dakin home in a way because now the business is able to afford to open a city center distillery will be smack bang in the center of manchester pretty much it's the equivalent of being between the Houses of Parliament and St Paul's Cathedral. That's how centre of Manchester we are. We're going to be between our town hall, Manchester Town Hall, and Spinning Fields, which is sort of the new office and, and shopping and restaurant area in Manchester. So we're, again, the legacy lives on. We're bringing it into Manchester. There'll be a bar, there'll be the distillery, there'll be a visitor centre. And as I said, the sort of story of Thomas Dakin linked to the industry of Manchester, linked to the culture, and obviously now in the modern day, linked to the, the bar culture. So why was it important to um, to remain in Manchester, to, to open the new distillery in Manchester? I think because, partly for that reason, I mean, Thomas Dakin is, is noted in in the distillery world as being you know the sort of founder and the forefather of, of modern english gins and was very active in the city it wasn't just making the gin there was a group of them including the greenholds family including joseph Priestley, who create uh, who discovered carbon dioxide to make fizzy drinks including some other great scientists and artisans of the time came together in the in the dakin amicable club and Dakin and his son set up the Amicable Society as a like-minded place for people to throw around ideas because they wanted to bring the tax money from the government back to Manchester to build academies, to build schools, to build great sanitation because they could see how bad a city can go, such as London had a lot of issues since the Roman times, whereas this was a modern city, so let's 
live up to that. So I think it's very important to be in Manchester for, for all those reasons, as well as, you know, it's a bustling, great tourist destination and we can offer something to that. And to be honest, Luke, when you come to Manchester, everyone's been, it's great. If you come in clubbing, you come in to watch a gig, football. But once you get past that during the day, you know, it's a great city to walk around and architecturally. But if you want to do something very intriguing in the day, there's not a massive amount of things to do. You, you know, if you're there for a weekend, I think we can add to the, the sort of food tourism and the drink tourism and the cocktail tourism and obviously come and have a great tour and learn a lot about the secret history of gin. Speaking then a little bit about the product, obviously you've mentioned it's got quite a unique ingredient in red coal or horseradish. Um, how is each bottle formed? What's the story behind, behind each bottle of Thomas Dakin? Well, it goes back to the, it looks like no other gin and it tastes like no other gin and it's distinctive in it in the way it's been recreated by Joanne Moore and the team we were around at the time trying to get the flavour profile right, that worked in great cocktails, but also worked in classics, but also can be in a great tom and tonic. That's part of it. Um, the bottle itself, if you look on the bottle, there's various nods to that era. So this heavy embossed glass, because the glue wasn't very good, things would fall off bottles. You need to know what's in the bottle. It's very decorative these days, but there's a practical reason for that. The bottle, we, we always reference it as a sort of the, the Dakin brick bottle, because it's quite a brick shape, because Dakin built his distillery in red brick and people thought it was crazy. Why are you building a distillery in what is then the most advanced and modern building material, red brick? You know, this this is a permanent structure. It's not just throwing it in a barn or, you know, using an old shed to, to make some gin and see how it goes. It was a putting his money where his mouth is. Dakin went, no, we're going to make gin better. It's not going to be Mother's Ruin or the poison of before. We've got a new modern way of making it and look at these flavours and try it and puts his name to it, which is a first for, for the north of England to have this happening. And then I suppose the other side is the bottles back in those days tended to be square, tended to be mis miscoloured. So we put a little gunmetal colour in there because it references the industry of Manchester, but also they couldn't really make clear glass, to be honest. So everything was coloured and sometimes it's referencing, well, this is poison or this is beer or this is wine. So that's interesting. And the square bottles, a lot of the case gin bottles from the Victorian area were the same. They were square um, or tapered, so they'd fit together better in cases because you didn't have cardboard inserts or breakages. So to have things that packed together quite well on a horse and cart or on a canal barge were was the ideal way, therefore less breakages. So there's lots of things referencing on there, as well as the label, which, to be honest, is... You know, it's the red brick of Manchester, the red label, and then also when you stick it on a bar by a happy accident, because we weren't that forward thinking. When we actually got the different colours and we tried them, the red just jumped out and it looked fantastic. And you'll you'll see that if you see it on a bar. It, it's, it just catches your eye. And then when you look at a bottle, if you want to know a bit more, it, it references lots of detail, whereas a lot of modern bottles, which very clean design, just say what it is, it's gin and a few botanicals. Whereas you see a lot of information on our bottle, because back in the day, that was what their advertising was. You didn't have... I mean, you might get a painting on a wall, a painted sign on a wall, which is part of our marketing. We're, we're doing some in Manchester on Abel Haywood, and you'll see them popping up around various bars where we get a traditional sign writer to do the Dakin logo, as it would have been done in the day. But really, the information was, hey, what's that? The apothecary or the bartender's passage of the bottle, and you read it, and there's the information you need. So all those things go into the, the bottle itself, um, coming back from that era. But also what goes into the liquid is we're a small batch. We're we're running a, at the moment in a around a... 450 500 litres still but we're we're going to keep it small when we open the distillery there'll be two i think a thousand litre stills and we'll also have a small 450 litre still where we can experiment with new distillery exclusives and new ideas and new flavors so we're keeping it as a single shot in small batches just as Dakin would have made it so from what goes in then the liquid to how it's designed to how it feels to the information on the bottle is all very much considered about that era and that's what we wanted to do
and it, I think it's worked very well. Now, you must obviously get in front of a lot of people, bottle in hand, you know, and tonic in the other, no doubt. You know, what what do consumers think when they taste and try Thomas Dakin? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the, the key learning we got in our first couple of years was being at giant food and drink uh, festivals where we started to see what people thought it's the best thing to do get in front of customers and consumers and and obviously bartenders in in visiting the bars but i think the great thing was we were seeing especially at the bigger shows where you might have you know eight thousand people a day at some of the bigger food and drink indoor festivals uh, are people coming around never trying gin before they may have been and tried a sweet liqueur on another stand a gin liqueur which is fine because now they go oh i didn't think i liked gin that was quite nice i think what it was especially over the last five or six years is even like myself i'm at my mum's barbecue when i'm 12 i see this fizzy lemonade with a lemon in a straw i pick it up i drink it and i splutter and spit it out my mum turns around, she's obviously heard this and gone, get off my gin, get off my gin and tonic, that's not for you. But in my head, it looks like lemonade, it's got a lemon in it, it must be lemonade, it must be the gin te- that makes it taste funny. So then many of us have grown up over the years, myself included, and I bear in mind I opened Manchester's first gin cocktail bar, so I'd got over this and realised what it was. In the end, the tonic, either it be not a nice tonic or a very bitter tonic or maybe just that bitter flavour when you're younger. So people acknowledge that with gin and don't like gin. Now... When they get educated and you say, well, hold on, try it with one of these new, slightly less quinine, less bitter tonics, or try a sweeter liqueur gin, and they go, oh, I like gin. So then they come up to Thomas Bacon, they suddenly like gin, they see some oranges and grapefruits and go, oh, wow, is this orange and grapefruit gin? Yes, it is, with a secret ingredient. What's that? Red coal. Okay, let's try it. And you mix it correctly with the right amount of, so I always mix it two to one, just so they can taste the gin. Use a really good quality tonic or even a, a lemon, a decent lemonade, cloudy lemonade if they really don't like tonic. Let them try it in the right way with a twist of orange or a grapefruit on top and people go, wow, you know, I didn't like gin till yesterday, last week. I was at a gin festival, even an hour ago I didn't like gin and they buy a bottle. So I think that to me is just serving it right in the right way and not necessarily serving it with tonic to people who maybe say they don't like gin. Majority of the time, it's the tonic they don't like. So I think that's that's a key in, in educating both customers and bartenders. And I think that's bringing a lot of new people in. So it's not so bad, I suppose, having some of the more sweet and novelty gins because people come to the industry, they try it, and then they walk past us and they say, wow, I didn't like gin, let's try yours. It looks great. The bottle attracts them, then the flavour and the smell and the taste. You know, we've, we're building a little bit of a, a cult of Thomas Dakin. I mean... I always say, Luke, you always know when you've made it, when you look on eBay and see that your empty bottles are being sold as wedding decorations or lamps that have been converted. So, you know, look on eBay, you'll see Thomas Dakin's popping up everywhere. What's the vision at Thomas Dakin? You know, what are the next steps you're taking? You know, is there is there something in the pipeline? You know, what's, what can you tell us? What can't you tell us? Yeah, well, the, the distillery's out. It's out in the open. So, to be honest, I was partly brought in by the the team to help the the bar and the distillery and the visitor center that's my background i became more on the bartender side after owning a bar and working and launching a gym bar and enjoying working there with my bartenders learning about classics and then going off and doing my own cocktails and obviously designing now i'm judging i've judged actually judged the stirred up matthew clark event which was great Sorry, not judged hosted, but I've judged cocktail comps in the past. So bringing that forward, we're going to have some great event at the distillery. It's not just going to be a space that's selling drinks, come on a tour, have a drink, leave. We're going to have some great uh, local music events. I'm working with some great local um, promoters in the band industry, live music industry. We're also going to have 
working because we were a very art and craft distillery in the past and we bring in that to the smaller Thomas Dakin distillery away from our bigger operation so in a sense it's all about you know harnessing the craft of Manchester and who can get involved to help us with what we're doing there I don't want to say too much about that because we've got a few great collaborations that are on the way and then also what can we do with the liquid it opens up a whole new world where I can get my hands on a on a still and come up with some ideas along with maybe some bartenders from around the world who've won our cocktail comps let's get them involved let's look at our, our sort of distillery exclusives working with some more local botanicals that we haven't done before so i think that that's a sort of generalization of what we're doing like i said i can't go into too many things because obviously we want to keep some of it to ourselves but i think that's the exciting thing for us i know joanne moore uh, who's our master distiller who's helped create thomas Dakin gin but also working with Chris, who's going to be our head distiller at the distillery, um, to be more experimental. And to be honest, I can't wait to actually have a, a full day creating a gin from scratch with Chris and see where we go and what can we do, but still keeping the, the basics of Thomas Dakin there. And of course, we'll have our gin academy, which will be like no other. You know, the gin's like no other. The distillery will and the tour will be very distinctive. And then we'll have this great opportunity for if you want to come and make a gin, we believe we've got quite a a new way of, of offering that to the public because you can make gins i've been and made a gin at a distillery it was a great experience i loved it actually getting your own botanicals and choosing them and measuring them out and then naming your gin and get and then i've still got some downstairs i have a every so often i have a little drink of it i don't want to waste it as a sort of party gin but it's a great thing to do so i think we're giving that as well an opportunity for people to experiment themselves oh and that will be down at the new visitor center will it absolutely yeah really really good well thank you for uh, for chatting with me today no fantastic thank you for for um, getting in touch it's been interesting to to talk and i hope um it sort of explains you know where where we are i invite everyone to give us a shout when the distillery is open and, and see what we're doing. And obviously, if they're in the Matthew Clark world, then please make yourself known. And I'm sure we'll be doing lots of collaborations with you down the line. Fantastic. Great stuff. To find out more, visit the Matthew Clark website or speak to your account manager. And don't forget to join us next time.